Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. Thank you for being part of my world. Um, today, I am joined by a lovely lady by the name of Dr. Deborah Kingston. And we first connected on social media, and it feels like we spent the last couple of years during the pandemic um, chatting and cheering each other on from the sidelines. But today was the first time I've been able to speak with her, um, you know, one to one, actually in real time. And so it felt like a real treat. Um, I really wanted to invite Deborah on for a variety of reasons because I think she has so much that so many of you will be able to resonate and connect with for a variety of reasons actually. So we are talking about um, coming to psychology slightly later than average, we are talking about dyslexia, we are talking about uh, retraining, talking about working in tricky areas, um, managing tricky situations, mental ill health, um, you know, striving for being a psychologist whilst being a parent. We've got it all covered. (laughs) Um, It's a punchy, interesting, engaging episode. Um, And I hope you will find it so useful. I will catch you on the other side. Hi, welcome along uh, to this very special episode where I am joined by Dr. Deborah Kingston. Deborah, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So you are a fellow clinical psychologist, um, but your route to clinical psychology may not look like, you know, a typical textbook assistant, you know, bit of a master's, um, get on to doctorate and done. Um, Would you like to tell people a little bit about your history? So when I was seven, well, let's start, I left school, didn't have a GCSE, no qualifications whatsoever, was told I was a little bit thick and incapable of learning. I think that's what one of the teachers said to my parents on a parents' evening. Uh, So uh, I decided to join the RAF. Um, That was my escapism from home and a life that really wasn't going to offer much opportunities. So I joined the RAF age 17 and did quite well, but it was during my RAF career that I started to get educated. Um, and I was, I worked really hard in the RAF and it was quite male dominated, as you might imagine. Um, and it was really hard to kind of get ahead in a little bit of a way, but I still, I did really well. I got promoted, but I did accountancy. So I was a catering accountant. I dealt with a lot of numbers. I dealt with a lot of people. I dealt with a lot of problems because drinking in the RAF, problems people would always come to our boss and I'd be like the the gatekeeper to the boss to go talk to him so I I really had this flair for chatting to people which I quite liked 
And then in 2003, I became quite poorly uh, with my uh, mental health, you know, severely being bullied by a senior rank um, who, you know, a lot of ganging up and stuff. And the medics just wanted to medicate me and said antidepressants for the rest of your life. You know, there you go. And it was during my time off sick, I helped one of my friends do a psychology module for their social work course. And it just felt like this was an easy thing to be doing for her. Like, and she'd failed it. So she'd come saying, I failed this module. I need to redo it. I'm really struggling. And I was like, oh, yeah, but, you know, this one says this. And this is really exciting. And this is really good. And it was like a real flair. And I'd been doing a business degree. So I was only two modules short of my uh, a BA in business studies. And it was then she said, have you thought about doing psychology? So I called the Open University, which again is not a conventional route for clinical psychologists. And I joined the OU and I did my first course. And luckily for me, there was a lady that had left Cambridge University and moved up to the north of Scotland and had a little freehold and just wanted to do a little bit of teaching. On my second essay, she wrote at the bottom, come see me after lecture, this subject's not for you. I'm like, she told me in that lecture, I was amazing last time. And I was like really conflicted. And then when I went to see her at the end, she's like, no, no, Deborah, I don't need to see you. Really good lecture again. And I'm like, right, whoa, you're confusing me now. And I pulled these essays out and I said, because you've wrote this. And she's like, oh my God, why didn't you just tell me you were dyslexic and we could have sorted something out. And I'm like, do what? And she's like, how has nobody pointed out to you that you are severely dyslexic? And I was like, well, they just said I was thick. And she's like, no, you can clearly tell by your verbal ability, you know your stuff, but your written ability is just so poor. Uh, we just need to get you some software and some techniques and that'll make a difference. And I went from basically going from a thank you for coming degree to 5% uh, off a first. That's all there was at the end. And I got a high two on, really pleased with it, to be honest. I didn't even know then I was going to become a clinical psychologist because every single time we went to an open university thing, they said to you, if you're over 30, you're too old to become a clinical psychologist. If you're just doing your degree now, and you're over 30, rule out becoming a clinical psychologist. Because clinical psychologists, you go A-levels, you go degree, you do some work experience, you do a master's, you get an assistant post, you go on the doctorate course, that's your route. And I was like, oh God, I'm 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 not just over 30, I'm well into 30. So I was like, okay. Anyway, I, I then I started working an admin job in the NHS, which I turned clinical a little bit. I did some audits and I did some clinical interviewing for the audit, and then I published the audit because I wanted to try and then somebody said, come get an assistant job, but you need to like have some experience. Um, and then I took the risk and left my full-time paid job uh, with a mortgage and two kids um, and jumped ship to a six-month fixed-term assistant psychology post with less money. And I thought, I've got, got to do it. Got to do it. And then I started that job in chronic fatigue services. A brilliant psychologist headed up that service. But it was only six months. She said, we can't do any more after that. And then I got another job in forensics in the same trust, but again, only six months. And it was there I really studied to apply for the doctorate. You know, when I did, oh, I missed a bit. I did an honorary assistant psychology job in the evening after my admin job all day. 
in a learning disability unit with challenging behaviour. And the year before, my supervisor had asked me to do the doctorate form. And I had been like, OK, I'll do it. And then when I went to my next supervision with him, he said, where is it? I said it went in the shredder and it was the most cathartic experience ever because I could see the gaps that I didn't have, which is what then made he said, take the risk, go fix her. So I did that. And then, yeah, I applied for the doctorate thinking, go for feedback because nobody gets on the doctorate first time or it's quite rare. The Trent course is quite grueling, like really grueling. Um, and I thought I'll go for the feedback, but I made sure I studied every night in prep for that interview, just so I could give myself the best shot. And that year they dropped the places from 20 to 19 and I was first reserve for a place. And that's how I got, that's from going from the REF, different things, onto the, onto the doctorate. That's incredible, Deborah. And actually a real few magic moments there, you know, the moment of um, discovering accidentally, you know, psychology degree, really, and then being told you're dyslexic. And it, I don't know, it feels like potentially lots of things suddenly might have added up and, you know, ends came together that really gave you important answers. And then, of course, I think telling you that you can't do something... <laughs> I think it's probably similar to telling me that you can't do something. It's really difficult. It's like, well, I'll show you, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I, I really try. And being, because, you know, also on the doctorate course, I'm the only person on the Trent course to actually submit two full theses. Because, and they failed my thesis on a technicality of one word, which my tutor had actually changed my research question with me. And they failed me on that question. And they said I had to do a brand new thesis from scratch. And they thought I'd resign. They thought I'd come off the course because I wouldn't want, I wouldn't have had time to do another thesis. And I turned that thesis around in uh, 13 months from idea to ethics. Well, I didn't need ethics. Yeah, ethics still said to put it through. 13 months, start to finish. And it, but it, it, I put, you know, I went up to like nearly 15 stone. I was very heavy. You know, my husband was away in the RAF. He did, he did the Libya campaign. He's done Afghanistan during that time. You know, he did Iraq prior to that. So the four years I was on my doctorate course, I think he probably only spent about 200 days of that four years at home. In that four years, and I had a, and I had a child to look after. My eldest had moved out. And it was just, it was, it was a difficult time, but it's well worth it that for said, what I do now. You know, that said... It really shows what we're doing to our aspiring psychologists, doesn't it? You know, because we are trying to live lives at the same time. And it is a grueling process. You know, there is many different um, plates that you're having to spin at that time. You know, you have the additional, um, I was going to say complication, but let's say, let's say additional joy of being a mother. Um, oh, you know. no, seriously, it felt like a complication <laughs> at the time. Because nobody else on my course had children. Well, there was only one other lady that had yeah. children. Um, and she she also found being a mother quite challenging you know the rest not even all of them were married you know they didn't have that juggling act and I think we are you know sometimes when you see these assistants desperate to get on a course and celebrating they've got on a course like I remember cheering when I got on the course and when I reflected back on it the other week I was like really I don't think I'd be cheering if I knew what I was in for it is and some courses I've got to say are really better than others 
and more diverse than others. Uh, my course was not. Um, it was really challenging. But I'm, they, they taught me a lot. Although trying to tell me that I would no longer be dyslexic after I finished the course. I, you know, do they know the, something we don't about dyslexia. Exactly. Apparently I was going to do that much reading and writing. I would cure myself would of my dyslexia. Right. Yeah, right. Interesting. Uh, again, they, you know, a lot of academic psychologists that teach clinical psychologists, you know, are very different, you know, and I think clinical psychologists then go off to sit, split in different domains, you know, some go neuroscience, some go academic, you know, I think I was very much, I wanted to help people. I wanted to help overcome trauma mm -hmm. because, you know, for me, being a child, I had a lot of trauma. I had a lot of trauma in the RAF and I just felt that I could, I could really understand people, not from a book, not from a manual, but from actually from some lived experience of just being in services. There's lots, of evidence, there's lots of evidence to suggest, isn't there, that people who've had developmental trauma are more likely to end up in, in, a, in, a, in, um, in an armed force um, or um, in prison as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. well, the, the, if you think about the ACEs, that's very much so. But the mm -hmm. military does attract people with a lot of developmental trauma. It gives them a real family. Yeah. You know, it gives them a purpose and a structure and boundaries and rules, you know, like I'm early for everything, like literally everything. I can't be on time because that's late. Because okay. the military teaches that if you're going to do something, you're five minutes early because that then means you're on yeah. time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, Deborah, even getting ready for this podcast, I confirmed with you, didn't I? Um, as I was about to eat my lunch, and you were like, "Yep, yeah, I'm just making a cup of tea, and then I'll be ready." And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm still eating my yogurt!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it goes. That's just. You know, I've been out of the military a lot longer now than I was in it. You know, I left in 2006. But, I, you know, I, I just, I'm more, I still have some of those ways. I like, if I tell somebody I'm going to do something, I do it. I never break a promise. Okay. Um, I work way too hard because in the military, there's a really hard work ethic. Um, so I do know that, but sometimes that can also, in clinical psychology worlds or in, that's not what they used to. Mm -hmm. They're not used to somebody like me. And again, if you're a little bit different, regardless whether it's sexuality, whether it's colour of skin, whether it's class and background, you know, if you're a bit different, you're going to really feel the weight of the clinical psychology course sometimes. Because it can feel like you don't fit in, that you don't belong there. Um, and I was very prickly on my doctorate course, I'm not going to lie. I think I probably annoyed a few people at times because I constantly ask questions because I love verbal feedback. <laughs> like I really learn through people talking to me and listening. It's that connection just, as well, isn't it? Often in teaching, you don't have the same connection. It's not personal. Yeah, and I just needed it. But I think a lot of people want to be silent and thinkers. Or, or just get in and get finished early to go to the pub or just go and <laughs> lay, lay and do nothing, I think sometimes. There was probably some of them too, yeah. Yeah. That's not me. I'm always like, what do I, I need to learn this more. And I still, like, I do so much CPD now. Like, I'm always on a CPD course. Like, my husband's constantly saying, what, another course? Why do we need another course? And I'm like, I need to know more because what if I don't know enough? What if I don't know it? What if a client sits in front of me and I don't know what to do? 
You do what, really well, what's, what's your advice to um, to our audience if they are feeling that imposter syndrome? They've got that worry that that someone's going to ask them something that they don't know. Well, do you know what? When, when I was on my third year of my course, my supervisor had said, ask me a question that there was no answer to. And I really, really struggled to say the words, I don't know. They literally choked in my throat as I was scrambling in my head for the answer. And I couldn't just say to her, look, I don't know. I'll go check and I'll come back and see you. I literally froze on the spot in that imposter syndrome moment. I like, she's found me out kind of thing. And she's like, Deborah, I've asked you a question. There is no answer to. I was like, why would you do that? She said, because you have to learn to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know can be okay. And I was like, what? What do you mean? I don't know. Can we get my chest in that moment felt like it was literally crushing? I was like, what do you mean? I don't know is okay. We're meant to know the answer. This is what they're paying us for. And she's like, no, they're not. They're paying for you to then go away and think about it. Come back to them. And I was like, oh, so that's now when I don't know something and somebody asked me something, I genuinely don't know it. It took me a long time to say. I can just say I don't know. Okay, so you can sit with that now and be okay with that. Yeah. But if people can get there quicker with that, it'll save them a whole host of worry and hassle. Yeah. So where did you end up working when you first qualified then? What did you do? I got a job at Lincoln Prison. And I absolutely loved it. I was finishing my thesis. I didn't quite have my doctor's title all the banding, all the pay, but that's okay. I absolutely loved it. I went in there and the guys at Lincoln Prison were amazing. I set up a trauma-informed work uh, group for both um, prisoners in the vulnerable prison wing and then the other wings, because you had to keep them very separate. And initially the prison thought we'd only do a group for one type of population, not for both. And I just felt like both populations really needed it because the one thing we found like you said earlier the majority of people that end up in prison have had developmental trauma but the one biggest thing I found through working there was nobody recognized those guys as victims it was heartbreaking some of their stories Marianne were really really heartbreaking in terms of the abuse they suffered the neglect they suffered And the fact that nobody cared until they pitched up in the criminal justice system. And then there was more a big stick approach than a trauma-led approach. And it was through group work and eventually EMDR that um, the guys I worked with really started to notice their own victim status and how they needed that to heal. But in doing that, they noticed that they created victims. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the prisons put on these victim empathy courses that supposedly teach them how to have victim empathy. But unless they truly get to the roots of their own trauma, they have to defend the fact that they've got victims because it'll just make them feel more vulnerable. Okay. So a lot of the... You've really joined programs, up that compassion, haven't you? That's yeah. That's like what you've done, yeah. But then, I then, st- then they started to spread my job a bit thin, so I had to then cover Lincoln and Nottingham. And then Lincoln, Nottingham, North Sea Camp, the open prison. And then it was Lincoln, Nottingham, North Sea Camp and Morton Hall, the Immigration Removal Centre. 
Now that, again, was quite harrowing. Seeing people dragged in because they had failed to complete a form in time or were deemed to be a risk. Now, yes, if you commit a crime over a certain length of time, apparently you then are likely to be deported. However, there was a lot of people in that immigration centre who had not committed a crime, who had come here for what they thought was a better life. Their journeys were terribly, terribly distressing from leaving their country of origin and their family at home and being almost imprisoned because they tried to find work and do the right thing. Um, and even some of the issues, like the idea of sending somebody back to a country that was homosexual, which would have led to their death, you know, I just thought, no, what? no, that's not the society. So I felt like I had a real fight for them. So, you know, I wanted to get their voice heard within that system, within that home office system. So again, in that place, I did teachings for home office staff around trauma and the impact of trauma, because they'd say, well, they didn't tell me that on the first, I didn't hear that, they haven't told me that, so therefore they're lying to you. And I'm like, why do you think they might not have been able to tell you about their most traumatic experience? Any, any, so we do some work on, what was your interview skill like? What, how did you present to them? Did you make them feel safe in the room? And they're like, it's not my job to make them feel safe. Um, but some of the immigration removal officers were brilliant and they'd get all that information. It's the same as prison officers. Prison officers would say prisoners were needy and manipulative and they and they all, they always choose the soft officers. And I said, and I remember saying to an officer one day, he said, am I being manipulated? And I said, who would you go to on this wing right now if you had a problem? Which officer would you select? And he named them and I said, why is your behaviour then not deemed to be manipulative, but their behaviour is when they choose the same officers? Mm. And so I did a lot of psychoeducation around that. I thought that was really important. Yeah. And it was a shame because the prison employed somebody to come in and be the boss of therapy services who had no therapy experience, wasn't a clinical psychologist, didn't meet this essential criteria, and then called me IAPT and told me I was to stop working with patients therapeutically do desktop analysis and at that point I said no if I'm not going to see and help patients I'm leaving and that's why I then went private okay oh it's it's very difficult isn't it because um I know um you know this work matters deeply to us as clinicians and humans and when we feel we can get that human connection and make a difference even for one person it's incredible and it's powerful and it keeps you coming back to work even on tricky days um but once someone gets in the way of you know it's I think it's that idea of moral injury isn't it and I'm not willing to work in that way. And that's actually more challenging to me to watch that go by and have and not be able to do anything that becomes a trauma in itself for ourselves if we stay. And you're then left with the decision of leaving a job that you love and a client population that you love very much because I, I did. you can't be party to it anymore. I can't just go in and help people. You know, the amount of times I would go on a wing, walk through, and just stand with somebody and ground them. You know, I went to Nottingham once and I, I changed days just because I had to. And as I walked in, I heard that one of my patients was on the netting and they were calling in the national team to get him off. And I, and I wandered up to the wing. Can, you tell, us what, can you tell us what that means? So Paint us a picture of on what on the uh, netting means. In, 
on in each prison as you go up the steps there's a, a net between each floor so somebody can't fall and land on the, the bottom floor so they can't basically commit suicide but they're on this netting and it's quite it's still a little bit dangerous and they're literally suspended in the air on this net so if you fall from a trapeze rope onto some netting you'd normally be able to roll off and get off in the prison you can't really do that you have to then get yourself to the edge and you have to climb off um, but prison officers, because it's dangerous, won't go on and get you off. So they, they won't go get locked up. They won't go back to their room. They won't do what they're being told to do. So the prison officers have been doing this merry dance for a few hours now. He's been on the netting. He's not coming off. He's right in the centre. And I, so I go in and he sees my face as if saying, no, it's not, not necessarily an act of suicidality. It's an act of, no, I really don't want to be around I anyone. Want be... I don't want to do what you want me to do. No, I don't want to do. But also he knew he would get a kick in because the national team would come in and manhandle him off there and put him down to segregation. So he'd get to be alone in a room in segregation away from all of it. So it was functional in the fact oh, that... Oh, it's like basic behaviour in like yeah. nurseries, isn't it? You know, it makes yeah, a lot of sense. he just needed to de-stimulate. It was too busy for him. It was too much. He was overwhelmed. He was also due to be released. He'd been in prison on and off since he was like 17. He's never really known the outside world. He was bloody petrified. Just dysregulated in every yeah. area. Yeah. Totally. So I go on and I say to the prison officers, look... I'm going to get him off here. And they laughed and like, he never comes off. He gets, this is the process. And I said, no, I'm going to get him off. But when I get him off, we're going into the little office and I'm going to just talk to him. And I'm like, that's not protocol. He has to get, no, I'm like, no, but neither is me getting him off protocol. Let's just try to do something different. Let's see if we can avoid him getting the kick in, avoid him going to segregation. Let's see if I can get him that, like, let's see if we can re-regulate him. Let's see if we room. can get him to choose a different yeah. behaviour that's more adaptive. Let's go with that idea. So literally, I walked over and I stood there and he's like, Debs, Debs, what are you doing here? Debs, what are you doing here? And I was like, I've come to get you off the netting. He's like, but they'll give me a kick in, Debs, if I come off those prison officers or jump on straight away. I said, no, I've got the assurance that's not going to happen. Me and you are going to go to the office and we're going to have an hour just in the office. And he's like, you promise if I come off this net and we're having that hour? And I was like, promise. And literally, I had to get him, even before he could get himself over the bars, I got him just to notice the feel of the netting on his hands, to notice the feel of himself there, to notice the connection with me, and then to come and hold on to the bars and notice how cold they felt on his hands and just ground himself before he then flipped himself back over the bars onto the landing, to then walk down the landing to go in a little office. And he sat in that little office on the floor like he was a five-year-old boy, petrified, Saying that they're going to burst through the doors, Deb. So they're going to don't don't want you to get hurt, Deb. So you stay away from me just in case they burst through the doors, and I, I can't have you hurt. And I'm like, they're not coming in. It's fine. Let's. And I got him regulated, and I said, about what's this all about? And he said, um, my girlfriend wrote a letter in, and she's breaking up with me, and I'm due out next week. I didn't know what else to do, so I thought, well, they'll keep if I create havoc, I get I get extra days, and then I might stay in, and I might. Are you really that scared? So we then were able to process why he was really that scared of being released. And what stepping stones did we need to put in place for him to be released safely? So it was a really, it was a beautiful thing. But And I do miss not being able to go do that because those clients aren't going to walk through the door of my private practice, which is a shame. 
But I bet you still live in their hearts, and that's the incredible power about. Well, they wrote our to me. Work. Some of them wrote to me. Um, you know, I've had drawings, I've had writings. I, I once worked with a guy who called me a see you next Tuesday for eight sessions. Ripped up loads of ID cards, wouldn't work. And then I said to him one day, look, I need to be your co-driver on this journey of change. Like, let's get on this train. Let's make a difference. I'll be your co-driver. And let's see what we can do. He's a Manchester lad. He was over here in Lincoln. You know, we talked about Holland's pies and Morby's bread. You know, it was something that just helps us connect. And if you're from Manchester and Lancashire, you'll know what Holland's pies are. If you're from anywhere in the country, you might have to Google them. Um, but it was something so simple to him. And he'd, he'd been failed by mental health services in every prison he'd ever been in. He was hooked on lots of prescription medication. You know, he was on the hook, but he had been in and out of prison again since 15, putting this window through in this house um, constantly. And then we did some really good work with him. And he recognised the house that he keeps putting the windows through is the man that abused him. But what he'd failed to realise in his head was that man had moved on years ago and it was always new families in that house that he was putting their windows through on. So nobody joined up the dots that he was, this was part of his trauma. And nobody treated his trauma. You know, this, this dad had been abused by everybody in his family. It was, in fact, it was probably one of the, abuse, the most horrible abuse cases I've ever heard. And we worked really well together. And then I managed to get him in a drug rehab service over in Manchester. He then wrote to me and said, uh, do you want to come to my graduation? Because I'm about to drive my train for myself. Oh. I no longer need a co-driver, but you're still there. Oh. And it was like, oh, it brings that like shivers down my spine. It's just How lovely, amazing isn't it? is that? Really, you know, really incredible. It was never, was never, never been seen he's never been seen before no. so to me that was beautiful but mm. I still do some I do some free work in clinic with some veterans that can't afford private therapy who've been let down by the system so because I am a veteran that they're, they're like the group I tend to even in the prison I used to go to the veteran groups you know the prison officers would go to those veteran groups we made the, the prison officers would just put a normal jumper on over their uniform kind of thing. So they didn't look like prison officers while we all sat around the table. Um, and uh, we'd take biscuits in and we'd have a cup of tea. Now, I know tea and biscuit is something like you think, but they don't get them in prison. You know, and it was just that area to like, let's think about this. Let's just be- Did you take, did you take nice biscuits? Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> when it was my turn, I took, but then they couldn't have foil on and you couldn't have this and you could, I had to decant them out. To, if they had any foil to them, that's a risk hazard in prison, so you weren't allowed. Um, yeah, but it, prison work was amazing. So anybody that wants to go to prison, by the way, absolutely 100%. And if you look at the Scotland stuff, they're doing loads on compassionate prisons. Amazing. I loved forensic work until I became a mummy. And then for me, it just changed the way I felt. I felt more vulnerable. Um, but I know lots of people that do work um, in prisons um, whilst being uh, a parent as well. Yeah, that was hard because there was only one time it really impacted on me, which was when I was doing the assessment of a sex offender and, he, and, he, and, and he'd come in on multiple, multiple counts. Scout leader, that impacted me on what I was going to let my son do at the clubs he was going to. I was constantly hypervigilant around that and I started to notice that was not a great thing as a mummy. Um, but this day when I was interviewing this sex offender, he literally told me about he told me about a boyfriend and, and I'd carried on with the assessment and then all of a sudden I went, uh, hang on a minute, just 
just throw the tea back in it. How old is your boyfriend? And he said the same age as my son at the time. And I was like, that's, and I, and I, and I was quite shocked. And I said to him, that's not your boyfriend, that's a victim. And I was really indignant about it. And then anyway, I then took a breath and I carried on with the assessment. And at the end of the assessment, I said to him, how did that go for you? <laughs> and he was like, well, you really didn't like it when I talked about my boyfriend. And I said, he's not your boyfriend. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but you didn't like it. He wanted me to agree with him. And I can't, you can't collude. He was gone. But that was the first time I ever felt quite rude in a session where normally as clinical psychologists that we keep that nice face sometimes. So yes, and we'll just, you know, but I'm really, I've got facial leakage. Like you, what you see with me is what you get. I'm like, if, I, if, I, if I'm confused or I'm horrified, I show it because I think it's more transparent and genuine for the client. But with him that day, I was furious, but it really impacted on me on my own child that day was mm really hard and the way we deal with that is obviously take it to supervision as well don't we let's model yeah. that as appropriate as well yeah we take it to supervision but yeah. sometimes supervision's fine sometimes you need to yeah. go for a run yeah or you need to scream it out yeah. or you need to go vent actually mm-hmm. there's a whole host of good ways supervision for me any assistant psychologist anyone that wanting to get on this course get in the habit of being vulnerable in your supervision because yes, when you go, it's all right to swear on these things. We can we can bleep it. <laughs> but basically, when you fuck up, you don't learn if you don't go talk about it. Yeah. How do you learn to overcome something you've done wrong if you don't talk about it open and honestly in supervision? Because then you learn better and we get better at who we are. Mm, we do we do um I know that my audience will be really keen just for us to clarify the process around what happens if when you're on a doctorate course your thesis is failed so my understanding is that you then qualify as an unqualified um clinical psychologist and you don't get paid anymore you have to do the thesis in your own time and you'll need a job is that right no so basically you still attributed to the course that you're doing your thesis for uh, you're right, you have to stay on your BANSIC uh, trainee wage, wherever you are on that. You might go up that what, the increment, wherever you are, but that's where you stay. So you go still as, in, in your employment contract, it will say that your employment will be terminated if you do not complete your doctorate course. So, yeah. So you're I doing the qualified the, role, but you're doing it as time. a band six, well, not a band seven. Yeah, and you yeah. don't get the study day. Yeah. You don't get any study leave. You don't get any study time in your new role. So basically what I'm saying to everybody is get your thesis done before you qualify. <laughs> but what you're also saying is it's not, it's, the, end, it's not the end of the world. And this, no, does, this, does, ha- this does happen. Um, and it might not be reasons that feel like they're within your control, um, but you can survive it. And actually, in the grand scheme of things, that one year hasn't really made an impact on your career. And it's likely that you would have you would have doing the same job anyway. You just got less money for it. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, is it did take a real toll on my mental health because they kept saying things like this is a declin site, normal version. There's no dyslexic version. This is a declin site. You know, who, people who, like you should, who people saying, should, who that course director. That? 
at the time. My course director said that to me. Another another member of the research team said to me, people like you lower the academic superiority of our course. You know, when you're getting those comments said to you at the same time and you can't Gosh, on behalf of on behalf of clinical psychology, Dr. Deborah Kingston, I'd like to apologize to you. Because that's not okay. You know, that's not not all right. But that's but that's the thing. People hear these comments, they hear things, and what they do is they'll internalize them based on their own history. But sometimes there's no need. Uh, Dr. Marianne Trent, for you to apologise for clinical psychologists because you're not narrow-minded, small, bigoted and discriminatory. So, you know, don't apologise for people who choose to have that behaviour. Yeah, I know, but I'm just, I'm sorry for humans, what they've done. But I, I, we, I'm aware of the time, I could talk to you for weeks, um, but something I ask um, everybody is, for any advice they've got for reducing burnout um, along the journey for aspiring psychologists, what top tips would you give? I would definitely say embrace yourself with people around you that love you because it's number one factor. I would get some support on your journey. So like, I think you do a lot of literature and a lot of things. I think that, I don't think we've had as much out for aspiring psychologists as we've currently got now. And I think it's tapping into those resources because I genuinely at times felt quite alone. And if you can connect with like-minded people in some form of collective experience, I think it's invaluable because I think it will keep you right. Your hobbies, I think it's so important to keep an essence of you. Even though at times you might not feel like you've got any time for them, you can imagine doing them just for a couple of minutes and it will really help. Because that sense of imagination, your body knows where that, like knitting or crocheting or art or dance or drama, your body knows where that feels good for it. It's got a good memory of that. So even for five minutes in the, the most chaotic of days when we're trying to juggle 15 plates, stop for a moment. Imagine you're doing the thing that you love the most and just really sense it in your body. And then you'll feel like you've just got a pep of energy to then keep going, which should, in theory, stop some burnout. Oh, you're worth your weight in gold, Deborah. Um, amazing advice. And, you know, I hope that our audience are just eating us up with a spoon. It's lovely. Um, where can people connect with you or learn more about you um, if they should want to? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not really, listen, I, I put the odd post out here and there, but I do, I always respond to private messages. You know, I've never let anybody down with that because I think it's important to pay back you know but I'm not the best at giving advice like on forms <laughs> I'm dyslexic people it's not my strength um however what I would say is really analyze that you know the application form for the doctorate of the clearinghouse really look at the scope of everything that you really need to do and then ask yourself do I have that experience and if I don't have that experience where can I go get it because I think it's important so many people apply for a doctorate course before they're actually ready to apply. So the year I shredded my application form, it actually felt like a cathartic experience because it would have just felt like, for me, like a huge failure. But I could see from the form there was gaps. So I think it's just being objective as well through this whole process. And, and if you have applied for the doctorate course, I knew a girl that applied for it four times on the bounce got on the reserve list and on the fifth time of asking didn't even get an interview mm. but then on the sixth time got on the course it's interesting because actually I think this amount of time to get on means that when you get on 
I think you're ready for training, but there are some courses, um, I know we're, we're running over time, but there are some courses who now don't even look at the form. So long as you meet essential criteria, you can then do um, an assessment test. And if you come first on the assessment test, for example, not first, but the first however many, you then get invited to interview. So the form's not even really being used. Um, so in theory, you could potentially get on very soon after your undergrad, but I needed all of those extra years, even the time I spent sitting in a hammock in Thailand for a few months. And I needed that time to help me later in my career. And I was the same. I did my honour it where I really learned about behaviourism. I learned about wards. I learned about nursing teams, the dynamics of teams. Then I went to the chronic fatigue service and I learned about occupational therapists and support workers and the vital role they play and the team element and group work and then I went to forensics and I really cut my teeth and I had an amazing supervisor I'm going to give her a shout out because without her I wouldn't be here which is Dr Kerry Beckley she was phenomenal um, and she was the one that mentored me I getting onto the course and then beyond that three years of my doctorate so you know it's about without that levels of experience joining it up together I would never have got on and I wouldn't be the clinical psychologist I am today doing my trauma-informed stuff because I've gone more specialism to be trauma-informed. I can't, I don't treat everybody. I don't have a list as long as you're on that say I do all these conditions. I'm a specialist in all this because I'm not. I'm just trauma. And that's me. Very lucky they would be to see you. Deborah. it's been such a pleasure having you here. I might well invite you back in future because there's lots and lots I could talk to you about. But thank you so much for your time. It's been a joy. You're welcome. Oh, thank you for listening or watching if you're on YouTube. I just could have spoken to Dr. Deborah all day. Um, if you don't currently have someone that feels like they're on your tribe, that they're your community, as we discussed um, with Deborah, then why not let me um, be considered for that role for you? Why not let me um, welcome you into the Aspiring Psychologist membership? Um, we are doing great things in there and people are finding it to be really supportive um, in um, you know, compassionately encouraging their development, but also helping to develop their skills too. Got loads in there. So you can find out more information about that by clicking the link in the show notes or my bio in any of my social media platforms will take you right there too. And of course, the Clinical Psychologist Collective is also a great place to start if you're looking to broaden your narratives of um, people heading towards qualified routes in psychology. Thank you very much for being part of my world. And don't forget the next episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast will be dropping into your ears um, at 6am on Monday. Take care of you, be kind. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. 
As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK declin site application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.